In February of 1812, an American Baptist missionary named Arnim Judson, along with his wife and missionary couple Samuel and Harriet Newell, sailed from Salem, Massachusetts to Burma with the purpose of advancing the gospel among this particular unreached people group. In April of 1819, after six long and difficult years, after the loss of a young son and many bouts with fevers and other illnesses, the now 31-year-old Judson held his first public worship service in Rangoon. Then, just two months after, on June 27, 1819, about seven years and four months after Judson left America and traveled to Burma, he baptized his first Burmese convert, Mung Nu. The secret of his faith, which enabled him to endure without worry so many years, Sowing without the joy of reaping a single convert, I believe can be learned from this one line that, that Ardenham Judson wrote in his journal. In sorrow or joy, health or pain, our course be onward still, we sow on Burma's barren plain to reap on Zion's hill. When Judson began his work in Burma, he had set the goal of translating the Bible into the Burmese language and planting one church. By the time of his death, Judson was able to complete the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language and planted over 100 churches and saw over 8,000 Burmese come to know Jesus. In fact, in large part, due to his particular influence there in Burma, the Burmese people are the third largest group of Baptists, second only to America and India. And I offer this story to you this morning as an illustration of enduring faith. What was it about Judson that enabled him to endure so long without a single convert? Seven years and four months preaching and praying without one single convert. The death of a child, sickness, disease. Why would he continue when everything around him said that he was an utter disappointment? There was no success for him to point to. No number to report back to the mission board. I mean, imagine in the context of of modern-day Southern Baptist life, he would have been a failure. Seven years without a single convert? That's some ACP report you're turning in there, friend. Not one aisle walked, not one prayer prayed. One baptism? No successful percentage of growth. No number barriers were broken. In the terms of the world, he was a failure. But why would he continue? Well, friend, I think it's captured well in what he said. Because of his unwavering faith in the sovereign grace of God. 
You see, he trusted that God would show himself to be faithful. He knew that growth was not a product of human will or exertion. He could not save one soul. God saves souls. Not evangelists. Not preachers. Not Christians. You see, Judson threw himself upon the sovereign grace of God and trusted that God would bring about life where there was death in a barren land. And Judson, like so many of us, had to learn that truth the hard way. Through loss of life, through difficult years, through trial and tribulation. His story reminds us that the kingdom of God grows mysteriously, independent of human effort, and will be gloriously expansive in its consummation. When Jesus said, my kingdom come, it will come. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he meant it. Salvation comes through this king who has come to declare redemption through his death and resurrection. Salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the Christian gospel. This is the message of reconciliation that we proclaim. And we have then an unwavering faith. God is at work both to will and to work for His good pleasure and not ours. That faith and salvation are at the heart of what we want to think about this morning. Faith and salvation. I invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 goes with chapter 8 as a unit. In the Gospel of Luke, he seeks to provide evidence that salvation is by grace alone through Christ alone. Salvation, the word to save, is the same word used to heal. And so verses or excuse me, chapter 8 and chapter 7, are permeated by these words to save, the verbal idea to save. And again, he's writing to Theophilus to encourage him in the faith by reminding him that Jesus is the sovereign one who is able to save. And interestingly enough, he records a story about John's wavering faith. I wonder how encouraging it would have been as Theophilus sat and read this. He himself discouraged, he himself needing to strengthen his own faith and to hear that the great John the Baptist even wavered at times. But the Lord restored and comforted and encouraged him. Now this is a very long chapter, 
And I'm not going to read it in its entirety in one setting, but read it as we go throughout. And so I want to offer you the main idea. We could summarize this entire chapter in this one idea. That Jesus is the long-awaited Savior who fully and finally delivers God's people from the ravages of the fall. That His salvation is freely offered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These polar ideas that we have to believe upon Jesus, but that salvation comes freely by grace. And so this morning I hope that you and I come away with this idea that Jesus has authority to save if you will repent and trust in Him. And so this morning we see three aspects of the salvation that Jesus offers sinners. And so if you take notes, there's three main points. First, in verses 1 through 17, we see that Jesus saves from the ravages of the fall. That Jesus has authority to restore that which the fall lost in His healing of disease and death. We see secondly, in verses 18 through 35, that Jesus saves only those who repent. Only those who repent. And finally, in verses 36 through the end of the chapter, in verse 50, we see a vivid illustration that Jesus saves by grace through faith. That the offer of salvation is by grace alone. That no human could ever measure up and merit God's love. But because of God's love, we are turned into radical lovers of God. These are the three points I want us to consider this morning. First, Jesus saves from the ravages of the fall. In verses 1 through 17, we have two scenes. And in these scenes, Jesus reveals His authority to save God's people. By delivering a man who had an incurable disease and raising a man who had died, Jesus proves that He alone is able and willing to save God's people. Two two scenes which are filled with impossibility. An incurable disease that no one can cure. And the last time I checked, dead people don't come back to life. Not unless Jesus is involved. Luke tells us after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was home base for Jesus' ministry. Now a centurion, a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard what Jesus, had heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, 
He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. And he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Then he came and touched the bearer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. And friend, I hope you see in this passage here two main ideas, that one, Jesus saves from disease, and number two, that Jesus saves from death. Of course, the story is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of theological knots to be untied. A centurion, a Gentile, wealthy, a commander of about a hundred troops, has a servant, we are told, who is highly valued to him. In other words, he was a very, this would have come at a great cost to this centurion. The centurion was, we are told, somewhat of a God-fearer in that he had tremendously blessed the people that he served, namely this particular town in Capernaum where he helped build the synagogue. And so the Jews highly respected him and knew who this centurion needed to go see. And so we're told that the centurion sins for Jesus, but it seems as though he has a, a change of mind. Interestingly enough, the Jews kind of prop him up. He's very worthy to have this done, but even himself confessing, I am not worthy, Jesus, for you to even come into my house. The real main idea centers around right there. Look with me at verse 8. Verse 8. This is really the main idea. Jesus, having paused the centurion, saying, don't come to my house, he says, for I too am a man set under authority. You see, this was a living illustration of Jesus' authority. Throughout the gospel up to this point, Jesus has healed by touch. He's touched and people have been healed. But here, Jesus heals without even being in the presence of the one who was sick. The one who had the ailment. He simply spoke the word and the The centurion's servant was immediately healed. 
of his sickness. It demonstrates to us as the reader the power that Jesus possesses. That the one who created the cosmos, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20, the one who called into existence this creation still possesses it here in his humanity. He possesses authority and power over someone who's not even in his presence. J.C. Ryle sums up this by saying, a greater miracle of healing than this in that nowhere is recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without a touch of hand or look of the eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks and the sick man is cured. He commands and the disease departs. This is the power of our Lord. He has power to save through His Word. But we see also here in the story of this this widow's son. Again, I want you to see something valuable is lost. Where the centurion lost a highly valued servant, the widow loses something valuable to her. Now we live in a welfare state. We live in a place that has a social security, and it's there to protect the vulnerable in society. Well, in first century Judaism, there was no social system that supported widows. You you were really desperate at this place, and so we're told that the son was the only son of the widow. And this is to emphasize the real desperate place this woman found herself in. But again, we see a number of things. First, verse 13, we see the compassion of Jesus upon the brokenness of this world. Now, I I think we want to be cautious not to attribute disease and death to a particular sin, but rather understand why is there sickness, disease, and death in our world? Why is there evil in the world? Well, it's because man rebelled against God, and because of sin, death entered the world. We get sick because of not particular sin, but because of our sin nature. Humanity is broken. Creation is in chaos. And we see a picture and a glimpse here of Jesus' compassion and brokenness upon this woman. Now how arrogant it is for Jesus to say in verse 13, do not weep unless he has a remedy to it. I mean imagine for just a moment you were in attendance at a funeral and you walked up to a grieving widow who's already lost her husband, now in a desperate place of losing her only son, and you say to her, stop crying. Get over it. Suck it up. It'll be okay. How cold. How arrogant. How mean. Jesus here, offering this word, is because he's about to do something radical and transformative. I want you to see something here of this story that, that I think for you and I, particularly if you're a Christian and you've read this story before or you just know the Bible really well, 
I think you read this and you're just like, yeah, a dead guy got up. Friend, do not miss the point of this story. This man is dead. He's, he's rotting. He stinks. We don't know how long, but, but he's dead, isn't he? They're carrying him out to be buried. And Jesus goes up to the young man and says to him, hey, fella, get up. Wake up. And the man immediately, we are told, gets up and begins to speak. Friend, dead people don't speak. They don't do it. This is against nature. This is against anything our mind can comprehend. But it demonstrates the power and authority by which Jesus exercises. He speaks to something that's dead and rotting. A brain that has ceased to receive oxygen and blood. And it's instantaneously healed. It's holistic. Do you understand when your body, your heart stops beating, your brain is deprived of oxygen, right? You're brain dead. But this man's brain, he's not only just alive, his brain is healed. He can speak cognitively. He can understand. This shows you the length of healing that Jesus brings. But of course, centurion's servant would die, and so would this man. He would die again. The point of the story isn't that Jesus was doing a, a number of parlor tricks in town, but that he was demonstrating his power and authority over sin and death. That he had come to restore what humanity had lost. There were many that Jesus could have healed, but he did not heal. Many who were dead that did not receive life. But those whom he did heal, it was to demonstrate his power and authority over sickness and death. It was to be a seal, a stamp to prove to you and to, to, to me that these healings were a foretaste of a future reality called the new heaven and the new earth. Where every tear would be wiped away. And there would be endless joy and life. It is to further demonstrate to us that Jesus is the one who has authority over death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, as Christians, we look at death and we say, ha, is that all you have? That's death, where, death, where is your victory? Where's the sting? I thought it was supposed to hurt. I thought this was supposed to be painful. Oh, it's not, you see. It's not because Christ is raised from the dead. He's been victorious. Even here, this healing points forward to the resurrection that the story ends with. That He is the risen and ascended Lord who has power and authority over death that you and I never need to fear doubt. Never need to fear death, rather. We never need to doubt God's ability to save sinners. For Jesus can heal a man's body with a word and He can raise a man from the dead. Friend, if He can do that, He can save you from your past. He can save you from the most heinous sin imaginable. He can save you for His glory. The ruins of the fall were all around them and all around us, sickness, disease, and death. But Jesus comes to deliver us 
His death has saved us, and He's promised a future where these things will be no more. But is, but is this salvation for everyone? Is it exclusive salvation? Could just anyone get on and get in on this, this new life? No. You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is an exclusive gospel. Because it's only for those, as we see in our next story, who repent. Jesus saves only those who repent. Well, verses 18 through 35 are a quite fascinating passage where we learn that John, the, the, the Baptist, the one who was the forerunner to Christ, seeks to question whether or not Jesus is the one. Now, just a bit of context, you'll be reminded that John has been locked away in prison. So, we've left John some chapters ago, there in a cold Roman, or rather Herod's cold prison, and really because John had called out Herod in his sin. Herod had divorced his wife and married his brother's wife. And John called him out, and he said, you're a sinner, and uh, God is going to judge you. And Herod said, ha, I have more power and authority than you, and he locked him away. Ultimately, John will be beheaded by Herodias his wife. And so John finds himself locked away in prison, locked away, if you will, in in Doubting Castle, and doubts began to creep into him. He begins to wonder, is Jesus really the one? And so John's disciples come to Jesus, and in this story, Jesus proves, yet again, his authority to save and gives further clarification through his comments. And he concludes by offering an invitation to those who would repent and believe in him. So let's look very quickly here. In verses 18 through 23, we see Jesus proves his authority to save. John's disciples come with this question from John. Look with me at verse 19. Calling two of his disciples, he sent him to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You hear the doubt in John's voice. Are you the one, or are we to look for another? Have I made a terrible mistake by landing myself in prison for you? Are you the one who has come to fully and finally deliver us? Are you the Messiah who Isaiah prophesied who would squash God's enemies? Because if you are, I'm getting out of this jail soon. But if you're not... It's not going to be good for me. And so he sends his disciples, and the disciple, John's disciples come, and they ask Jesus this question, are you the one, or shall we look for another? Then verse 21, look with me there. I love Jesus' compassion for John. He says, that hour he healed many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. I love it. He says, hold on. Uh, Uh, Let me give you the answer. Hold on, just a minute. And he goes and heals a bunch of people. All right, now, I've healed all these people. Now I want you to go back to John, and I want you to tell him, verse 22, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, Jesus offers to John proof 
for his doubting faith. A number of things. Number one, do you waver in faith? Then look further, no further than Jesus. That's what Jesus does here, doesn't he? John's faith is weak, and so what does he do? He shows his glory to him. Look to the glory of Christ, and there your faith will be strengthened. But verse 23 is the key verse. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What does this mean? Was John offended? How, how was he offended by Jesus? Well, the whole story is couched in offense. The whole passage is couched in this sort of offense. You see, the problem with John's faith was that Jesus wasn't the Messiah he thought he was supposed to be. Remember, John preached repentance. John preached, hey, look, there is one who is coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and whose winnowing fork he has in his hand. Right? He preached to Jesus who's going to come and clean up house. But Jesus hasn't done that. Jesus has been hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus has been partying. Jesus has been celebrating. You remember last week. Hey, what's the deal with your disciples? They don't fast. Here, everybody else is fasting and weeping. John's disciples fast. Here are your disciples. Jesus party. What's the story with that? You know, it's a reminder to us that Jesus isn't the Messiah that we sometimes think he is. You see, all of us have these particular expectations that we put on Jesus, and Jesus never measures up to our expectations. You see, it's not that Jesus came to do our will, but his own, and particularly the Father's. And so the story goes on by Jesus here reminding the crowds of John and who is positioned. So he comments on his own authority. So very quickly, verses 24 through 30, Jesus here goes on to really rebuke the crowd, lest they think that John is some foolish man and they ought to ignore him. He says, they began to speak to the crowds. What, what then did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaking by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yes, the one who is least, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's a reminder here, John was no weak man. He, he was no weak-willed man, Jesus says. John did what God called him to do. So we don't just begin to conclude that he must have failed. He must have fallen short. No, he had a particular place to call sinners to repentance, but we, we need to be careful that you and I don't find ourselves in the wrong part of God's redemptive story and wrongly apply that part to our life today. We, we don't live in this particular season of God's redemptive history. We live after the cross. And John here was confused about the timing of a number of matters. And this is what Jesus is encouraging. Well, notice here he goes on in verse 29. This is in sort of a bracketed off. Luke here is adding some comments here on this whole passage to help us understand it. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God's just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then should we compare 
the people of this generation, Jesus goes on to say. What shall we say? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our, her children. What's Jesus' point? Well, in this section, Jesus here is clarifying a call to sinners to repent and to be saved. All those who had submitted to John's call to repentance were excited because they knew that they were on the right side of history, if you will. They, they knew that they were submitting to God's will. But you see, the Pharisees rejected John's call to repentance and faith. They didn't need to be baptized of, because of their sins. They, they didn't need to confess their sins, and, and they didn't need a Savior, And Jesus here uh, gives us a a vivid illustration of their problem. He tells us they're like fickle children. Look there at verse 32. They're like children in a marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Uh, Children today uh, perhaps play cops and robbers, right? They they play, they role play, right? They, They play out the things they see in their life. They, they might play home. You know, there's a mom and a dad and some kids if they've got a group of them. They, they, they play act. Well, here in the first century, children, and this is culturally strange to us, no doubt, played what they saw in the streets. And what they saw in the streets was weddings and funerals. And so children would play act funerals. Because that's what they saw in the streets. They would see uh, mourners going by. And so later that day, they would all get their friends together and they would play act funerals. Or they would play act weddings because they would see the bride and groom march through the city marketplace and they would watch the music. And so Jesus here is describing a group of children that don't want to play weddings and don't want to play funerals. They're bored. And how many of y'all have ever had a, a child come up to you and say, I'm bored. I ain't got nothing to do, right? And Jesus is saying they're like the Pharisees. When the funeral music is being played, they don't want to play funerals. When the wedding music was played, they didn't want to play weddings. The Pharisees, when John was playing funeral music, repent and believe, they didn't want that. And when Jesus came, playing wedding music, joy and excitement, for the groom has come. How can your, remember, how can your disciples fast? He says, well, how can they fast when the bridegroom is here? Wedding music. You see, the whole story is about Pharisees not wanting to repent. You see, the hinge of salvation turns on repentance. Salvation is not by intellectual knowledge, is what Jesus is saying. Knowing facts about Jesus will not save you. Knowing that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners, that he died in three days, rose again, will not save you. The Pharisees knew that. They tried to cover it up. 
It is only saving in so much as you turn and repent and trust in Christ. Why do some reject salvation? It is not because they do not know the truth, thus need to be convinced. Friend, you will never be able to argue someone into heaven. Salvation turns on this hinge of repentance. Some reject the gospel, not out of intellectual necessity, but because they refuse to repent and trust in Jesus. This is what this story is about. Salvation was being freely offered to them, but yet they rejected it. J.C. Ryle says it this way, the plain truth is this, that the natural heart of man hates God. The carnal mind is at enmity against God. It dislikes His law, His gospel, and His people. It will always find some excuse for not believing and obeying. The doctrine of repentance is too strict for it, they might say. The doctrine of faith and grace is too easy for it. John the Baptist goes too much to the world. Jesus goes too much into it. And so they have excuses. Friend, what's your excuse? I can't ever join those Christians, they're mean. Yes, they are. That's why they need Jesus. Oh, this church is becoming too liberal. They're just letting everyone in now. Too much for one or the other. The salvation that Jesus brings and, and the kingdom of God He ushers in is exclusive. is for those who repent and believe. Lastly, here we see that Jesus saves by grace through faith. In verses 36 through 50 of Luke chapter 7, he offers us a living illustration of everything we've thought about today. That the children of wisdom are those who follow God's will, which is demonstrated in this woman's extravagant love for Jesus. Whereas the Pharisee disregarded for Jesus this sinner demonstrates in a vivid way those who understand, understand rather their need of a Savior. I'm just going to read this passage to you, make a couple comments. I think you'll find the meaning pretty straightforward. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has been wetting my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, from the time I've come in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A sinner that did not deserve salvation and a Pharisee who thought he deserved it. You see, Jesus came to save those who recognize their need for salvation. We don't have time to go into all the details of this particular story, but it is quite straightforward. A wicked sinner weeping before the feet of Jesus perhaps giving everything she has in her dowry and breaking this alabaster flask, recognizing that she has no earthly treasure, that all she has is Christ, perhaps having heard the gospel already, she responds with faith. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Not that faith saves, but rather the one in whom she's placed her faith. And the Pharisee is incensed. And Jesus, when reporting this illustration, gets at the heart of the matter. You see, this woman was forgiven of a lot of things. She was a sinner. Jesus does not in any way minimize her sin. He says her sins are many. But salvation, you see, isn't by works. It's it's not because we're good that we're saved, somehow meriting God's favor, but it is the unmerited favor of God. It is by grace alone that we're saved. And this woman understand, understood rather that, that she could only be saved if God was merciful to her through Christ. How could Jesus forgive this woman's sin? How could Jesus so easily say, your sins are forgiven you? Because in a matter of months, he would die the death she deserved. He could freely offer forgiveness to her because he would pay the penalty that her sin rightly deserved. Jesus came to die the death you and I deserve for our rebellion. There's no more work for us to do. He completely finished that work. And therefore, we have peace with God. One of the aspects of this story is that of hospitality, particularly the Pharisees' hospitality of Jesus. He does nothing for Jesus because he doesn't think he needs to, but this woman demonstrates extravagant love for Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus says it, doesn't he? Look at me in verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins are forgiven, which are many, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. 
Brother and sister, do you desire to love Jesus the way this woman loved Jesus? You want to know how? Do you want to know how to love in this way? Well, it's by recognizing the depth of your own sin. You see, this woman wasn't afraid of her sin. She wasn't afraid as a woman of the city, possibly a prostitute, to go into this Pharisee's house and do something radical to demonstrate her love for Jesus. You see, it begins by growing in your own understanding of how great a sinner you are. For if you've only been forgiven of a little sin, oh, I've not been that bad in my life. I've been quite good. And friend, you'll never love Jesus this way. But friend, if you've been forgiven a cosmos of sin, then you will love Him greatly. I think as Christians, and particularly as a congregation, we want to just sort of marinate a bit on how wicked we are. To be reminded of how great a love God has shown for us and that our love and devotion for Christ would grow all the more. Isaac Watts captures this, I think, best in his hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. But drops of, my drops of tears can ne'er repay The debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. This woman gave herself away. She she gave everything to Jesus out of love and devotion because He had forgiven her her sins. Friend, if you've been forgiven of your sins, you ought to give your life away to Jesus. Give your money away to Jesus. Give away these earthly possessions to Jesus for the glory of Jesus. Stop holding on to this world. Stop loving this world and love Jesus. You don't love Jesus because you've not been forgiven. Oh, how we ought to hate our sin rather than love it. How we ought to hate our sin rather than cleaving to it. Forsaking it. Christ has offered us freely forgiveness. And peace, He says. Go in peace. God and sinners reconciled. That's the joy that we have. Friend, we sang earlier that I was once in lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew my way. Sin had promised joy and life, but had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. Oh, what glorious truth. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, oh, how costly our sin is, you looked upon my helpless state like the helpless state of this woman. And gently led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. That's all we know is grace. 
For we've been saved by grace. Our life is marked off by grace. That's all we know is grace. And it is out of this grace that we abundantly love our Savior. Jesus is this long-awaited Savior who has fully and finally delivered God's people. For those who would repent and believe in in Him, He he has the authority to save. He's demonstrated it. Friend, will you turn and trust in Him? If you would believe upon Christ, you too, like this woman, could receive forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness. Now. Not in the future. Now. The psalmist says that when God forgives us our sins, He caps, casts them into the depths of the sea. Corey Ten Boom once wrote, That when God takes our sins, the past, the present, and the future, and throws them into the sea, He puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. What a tremendous truth of grace. Friend, if your sins have been forgiven by the eternal God, then no man can bring them out and accuse them Satan cannot accuse them with you. And God would never go fishing for them again. You are forgiven. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to know these truths more deeply. Our prayer is to love extravagantly the way this woman loved. Costly love sacrificial love, all because of the love that You have shown us in forgiving our sin and our iniquity and casting them as far as the east is from the west. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Be the sin the double cure, saved from wrath, and make me pure. This is our prayer, Lord, and it is for your glory in Christ we pray.